Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We are an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many, rather than creating profits for an elite few. Our members come from diverse backgrounds, but we all share one goal, to build a different world, a better world. Happy May Day, comrades. Today, we're going to talk about the recent teacher walkout here in South Carolina, which culminated in a rally today in the state capital of Columbia. The reasons for the walkout, low pay, large classroom sizes, lack of resources, and state support, have been cited in other walkouts and strikes across the country. Teachers have already walked the picket lines in Los Angeles, Virginia, Denver, West Virginia, Oakland, Kentucky, and Sacramento, with largely positive results. Here in the Carolinas, this year's protest action was organized by the teacher activist group SC for Ed, under the title All Out May 1st, A Day of Reflection. In part one of today's episode, We're going to talk about the walkout from a socialist perspective, get some reports from on the ground, and suggest some ways in which we might support our fellow workers to put pressure on the state to meet their demands. And let's not forget that today is dedicated to those workers. So in part two, we're going to talk a little bit about May Day, trace the history of May Day, and share some stories about how May Day has been celebrated throughout labor movements here in the South. For part three, we're going to put a big red bow on this episode by laying out what the stakes are for the teacher strike and where we might go from here. We're going to do our best to stay on top of this issue, so keep your ears open for future episodes on this topic coming soon. As our comrades currently are marching in the street today, fighting to wrestle what they've earned from greedy state governments, we believe this bears repeating. The future is not set in stone. It belongs to the radicals the fighters, the renegades. I'm CJ Bones, and this is Renegade Paradise. Welcome back to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm CJ Bones. Thanks for listening. Today in Columbia, over 10,000 teachers and supporters assembled to protest, march, and draw attention to issues that have plagued schools statewide, including low pay, large classroom sizes, lack of resources, and lack of state support. To To say the scale of the turnout was massive is no exaggeration. The last time this many people swarmed the state capitol was in 2015, to watch the Confederate flag being removed from the grounds shortly after the white supremacist terror attack at Mother Emanuel AME Church in downtown Charleston. A sea of red stretched from the state capitol steps all the way down the street as protesters chanted the words, We teach, we vote. The teachers, organized by the teacher advocacy group SC for Ed, under the social media hashtag AllOutMay1st, have been asking the Republican-controlled state legislature for additional support for public schools across the state. 
In a matter of weeks, the protest movement swelled in numbers, forcing seven school districts to cancel classes due to a lack of substitute teachers. SC for Ed cited the following issues as reasons for the walkout. 1. The proposed creation of a private school voucher program and the creation of a new education oversight agency overseen by the governor. 2. The state's education funding system, which the South Carolina Supreme Court declared fundamentally inequitable in 2014, but which the legislature has refused to change. 3. Act 388, a 2006 law that prevents homeowners from paying property tax towards school operations, which shifted much of the tax burden from the school funding under renters and business owners. 4. The state's chronic underfunding of its own education mandates. 5. An antiquated school bus fleet long overdue for replacement. 6. Classroom size limits, which have not been enforced since 2010. 7. State-enforced minimum teacher salaries, which have not kept up with inflation since 2003. Several Democratic lawmakers also have come out in favor of the walkout, including Senator Marlon Kempson of Charleston and Representatives J.A. Moore and Marvin Pendarvis of North Charleston. The teacher walkout has attracted the interest of two 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, Senator Kamala Harris, who held a roundtable event with Teachers Tuesday in West Columbia, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, who spoke on the phone with organizers on the day of the walkout. Some of the usual suspects have condemned the walkout, including Governor Henry McMaster, Senate Majority Leader Shane Massey, and State Education Superintendent Molly Spearman, who spent Wednesday subbing in at a Midlands area classroom rather than joining her teachers. Again, the walkout was not technically a strike, but we know a scab when we see one. The Berkeley County School District appeared to chime in with a bit of concern trolling just before the walkout, releasing a statement saying, quote, We plan to proudly stand in for our children as needed as we realize the potential impact of this event, even just for one day, could be tremendous for some of our families, unquote. It didn't take long for massive public blowback to reveal Berkeley County Superintendent Eddie Ingram as the author of the statement. Needless to say, Ingram quickly apologized as his temper tantrum was, quote, not well received by some in our community, especially our teachers, unquote. The 10,000 marchers on Wednesday appeared to agree. Perhaps one of the most confusing statements on the affair was given by Allendale County Schools Interim Superintendent Margaret Gilmore, who wrote in an email to teachers saying, quote, If you choose to reflect, you must reflect while working and providing instruction to your students in the classroom. Not really how a day of reflection works, but make of that what you will. So it seems that in South Carolina, the battle lines are pretty clearly drawn, with teachers and school workers on one side, with some support from Democrats, 
and Republicans slash the state on the others, along with various school administrators and superintendents. There are two reasons for that. Number one, the short-term goal for state Republicans is to extract the labor of education professionals for as little as possible. But the long-term goal is to strike a killing blow against free, high-quality public education by privatizing education in the state in general. So how do state house predator capitalists extract this labor? By asking teachers to work long hours with very little support and with very little pay. On average, South Carolina teachers make about $50,200 a year, according to the latest data compiled by the National Education Association. South Carolina's average teacher salary ranked 40th in the nation and fell far below the national average of about $60,500. In exchange for these meager salaries, teachers across the state are subjected to chronically underfunded classrooms, often purchasing hundreds or even thousands of dollars of supplies out of their own pocket every year. Columbia-based newspaper, The State, interviewed several teachers who participated in the walkout and obtained some extremely compelling quotes. As an example, Steve Bauman, a special education teacher in Lancaster County, cited professional development support as one of the reasons for participating in the walkout. Last year, Bauman spent approximately 10% of his income on extra training to better serve his students, he said, and has given more than 70 hours of free tutoring in the past seven months. One would think that the low pay would be difficult enough, but teachers across the state also find themselves scrambling for time or working extra hours to get tasks done. Another teacher by the name of Patrick Kelly was quoted during the walkout saying, quote, we're literally running people out of the profession because there aren't enough hours in the day to do what they're asking us to do. Kelly teaches advanced placement U.S. government at Blythewood High School in the Richland 2 School District. To put the time requirement in perspective, Kelly said that it takes about four hours to grade a single page writing assignment for nearly 100 students. That's almost all the planning time a teacher has at school in a week. One can clearly see the amount of free labor extracted by schools, as many teachers are forced to work late into the night and on weekends to plan and grade assignments in a timely manner. Of course, few would argue that teachers have chosen their profession for the money, perks, or leisurely work schedule. But this doesn't exclude the fact that the South Carolina government is failing to provide the resources that ensure all students can obtain a high-quality education. Quite the opposite, in fact. Back in 2003, Republicans consolidated a trifecta of power by winning the governor's office and majorities in the Senate and House. Since then, they have kept an iron grip on the reins of power through a combination of redrawing districts to their advantage, voter suppression and intimidation, seeking alliances with wealthy capitalist donors, and campaigns that divide the working class 
across racial and religious lines. Since 2003, through a combination of negligence and malice, the state Republican Party has allowed public education in South Carolina to drop to, quite literally, the worst in the country, according to a report by US News and World Report. Folks, it ain't working. As a result, South Carolina teachers are leaving the profession faster than university education departments can award degrees. Local teachers that stick it out face an uphill battle with virtually no support from the state. However, there are some silver linings. A budget likely to pass this year may raise the state minimum starting salary to $35,000, nearly keeping up with inflation for the first time since 2003. At a cost of $159 million, the plan would give teachers with fewer than five years of experience up to a 10% boost in pay. All others would be guaranteed at least a 4% raise. But this silver lining does not change the fact that teachers will continue to be exploited in the name of keeping taxes on the predatory capitalist class as low as possible. Ultimately, there is only one solution available. The teachers must be in control of the schools they work for. And the best way to do that in the short term is unionizing. Attempts at making progress through unionizing have proven difficult in the past. But there are a few factors that remain on our side. One, South Carolina is one of only three states that never passed a law specifically banning or allowing teacher strikes, along with Utah and Wyoming which means that we can use the ambiguity of the law to our advantage. Two, state teachers have proven they are effective organizers and can quickly rally large-scale support within a matter of weeks. Strength in numbers is critical when fighting a system as broken as ours. There are inevitable consequences. Some teachers will experience intimidation and retaliation from higher-ups within the district. But all that bluster won't win if every teacher who wants a strike has a powerful support network in their corner. Three, while considered by some as a, quote, anti-union state, unquote, South Carolina has a history of being on the front lines of the battle for social justice. Many experienced, effective organizers in the Carolinas can be mobilized to assist with a full-fledged unionizing effort. We here at Charleston DSA are extremely proud of our teachers for taking these first few steps in not just fighting for higher pay and more state support, but also for the right of a high quality public education for all students. So, how can we support teachers engaged in this type of direct action? Whether it's a one-day walkout or a multi-day strike. We've proposed an incomplete list of solutions but ultimately, these solutions should be used as guidelines, not hard, fast rules. Each direct action is unique based on the situation on the ground, the organizing capacity of the groups present, and the types of support the organizers can expect from their respective communities. Number one, just show up, even if it's just for 15 or 30 minutes. If you have a moment on your lunch break and can get to the action quickly, join the striking teachers. 
If you have the ability to commit multiple days or travel expenses toward the action, then do that. If everyone contributed just a little bit, it will quickly add up to a lot. Two, typically organizers will have a fundraising pool that goes toward paying for food, travel, lodging, and legal expenses for the direct action. If you can't be physically present at the strike or walkout, ask the organizers or do a little research on your own on how you can contribute to their fundraising pool. Three, the teachers at the all-out May 1st walkout all wore red as a visual tool to express an overwhelming tidal wave of solidarity. If you can't be physically present at the strike or walkout, consider wearing an eye-catching red pin. If you can, organize your friends, neighbors, and coworkers to do the same. Get the conversation going wherever you can. Four, call the school board and superintendent and let them know you support the teachers. In the case of the all-out May 1st walkout, community pressure was enough to force Berkeley County School District Superintendent Eddie Ingram to apologize after issuing a blatantly anti-teacher statement. Five, if you have contacts with other unions in the area, and yes, we do have them here in South Carolina, even though we're considered a so-called right-to-work state, reach out to these unions and ask them to offer their support and experience. Six, is your home close to a strike or walkout? Consider offering it up as a shelter if it starts to rain or for the use of the bathroom. Seven, provide childcare or elder care. Whether a one-day walkout or a grueling long-term strike, direct action typically requires a lot of time and resources. Teachers who are on the front lines need help taking care of their kids and elderly relatives while on the strike. Help arrange collective caregiving. Eight, bring food, water, coffee, and other supplies or snacks to the teachers. For longer strikes, donate groceries for striking families. Nine, assist with additional fundraising efforts. If workers are on strike, they're not earning money. Even if there is a strike fund, it may not cover all costs. 10, above all, do not cross picket lines. Do not sub in for a teacher during a walkout or strike. If you do, then you are providing assistance to a broken, corrupt system that is more interested in extracting as much free labor or cheap labor as they can from school employees, rather than providing high quality public education for all students. Don't be a class trader. Do not cross picket lines. Ever. So now that you're up to speed on the all-out May 1st walkout, you might be asking yourself, where do we go from here? What are some things that we as workers can do after dipping our toes in the water of direct action? In part two of today's episode, we're going to attempt to put the walkout into a historical context and offer some analysis on what lies ahead for South Carolina public education and unionizing efforts across the state in general. This is an ongoing discussion, so be on the lookout for future episodes on this topic, coming soon to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. We will also be launching a YouTube channel in the near future, so you can find us there too. 
we're going to take a short break, so please stick around. I'm CJ Bones, and this is Renegade Paradise. Welcome back to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm CJ Bones. Thanks for listening. Before the break, we were talking about putting the all-out May 1st walkout into a historical context. So let's dive in. We're going to start part two of today's episode by putting to rest the idea that South Carolina is some monolithic block of anti-union propaganda. Some folks on the left are quick to write off the South when it comes to organizing behind explicitly socialist causes such as labor rights and, as we will touch on in a future episode, Medicare for all. While South Carolina does have a ways to go on a number of social and economic justice issues, this state has seen several labor movements come and go throughout the 20th century. And we here at Charleston DSA believe the labor struggle of the early 21st century will belong to the teachers. It's an issue that's not going away. Teachers won't be placated by a minimum wage increase every 20 years. A capitalist system, by definition, is incapable of paying public school employees what they're worth. An educated public is critical to American society. So public education is an incredibly valuable service that sure as hell deserves more than $50,200 a year. We have seen the capitalist tendency of underpaying and exploiting workers time and time again throughout South Carolina's history. We saw it in the general textile worker strike in 1934 when the United Textile Workers, the UTW, launched a nationwide strike. In the 1920s, mill owners, in an attempt to stay competitive and keep prices low, raised workers' machine loads and quotas without increasing their pay. Workers called this the stretch out and fought back by sabotaging machines or moving to different mills hoping for better conditions. When those strategies failed, workers joined unions and strikes. In 1929, 12,000 South Carolina textile workers walked off their jobs in protest against the stretch out. But hard times continued, and then got worse with the onset of the Great Depression. The election of Franklin Roosevelt in 1932 generated some momentum for the textile workers. Roosevelt promised workers a new deal, and many believed that better days were just around the corner. Within his first 100 days in office, Roosevelt signed the National Industrial Recovery Act, which promised higher wages, shorter hours, and the right to join a union. Mill managers interpreted the law differently and largely rendered it toothless on the job floor, which understandably created quite a bit of tension with workers. On September 1st, 1934, Labor Day, the UTW launched a nationwide general strike by the end of the first week, almost 500,000 textile workers from Massachusetts to Mississippi had walked off the job. In South Carolina, 43,000 men and women joined the protest, shutting down two-thirds of the station's 200 textile mills. Predictably, the predatory capitalist state of South Carolina responded the only way it knew how, with violence. Governor Ibra C. Blackwood declared that the state was being invaded by a wave of, quote, mob rule, unquote. Vowing to keep the machine of capitalism humming at any cost, Blackwood called out the National Guard and State Highway Patrol. 
Union leaders and strikers were harassed, assaulted, and incarcerated. Tensions reached a breaking point at the Chicola Manufacturing Company in Honeypath on September 6, 1934. After three days of fistfights and shouting matches, a group of reinforcements for local strikers rode to town to meet them in front of the mill. Inside the mill, police and newly deputized officers prepared to murder strikers in cold blood at the slightest provocation. As the day began, strike supporters moved forward to block the mill gate. They were met with first billy clubs from police officers and then gunfire. As the massacre ended, six strikers lay dead and a dozen wounded. Most had been shot in the back, cut down as they fled. Some predicted that the state-sanctioned murder of several striking workers at the Chicola Manufacturing Company in Honeypath would end the strike. But the picket lines held strong. Still, a crisis loomed as the UTW had almost no strike funds. Local charities pitched in, but they were not eager to underwrite an industrial rebellion. That left workers dependent on themselves. Throughout the strike, families survived on fatback and cornmeal. But by the beginning of the strike's third week, even these meager resources started to run low. Desperate for food, a few workers started to trickle back into the mills. But remarkably, and as a testament to the resilience of the workers, the picket lines held. Unable to provide relief, UTW leaders feared that hunger would push more strikers back to work. By the middle of September, union leaders were looking for a way out of the conflict. On September 20th, they got their chance when a Roosevelt-appointed mediation board recommended as a resolution to the strike the establishment of a permanent textile labor mediation board and federal studies to examine the industry's capacity to raise wages and lower workloads. The proposal offered striking workers virtually nothing. No pay hike, union recognition, or guarantees they would even still have jobs when the strike ended. Still, Roosevelt urged the UTW to accept the agreement. And on September 22nd, union leader Francis Gorman, concerned that force and hunger were driving mill hands across the picket lines, told his members to go back to work, reassuring them that they had won a, quote, overwhelming victory, unquote. On foot, in truck, and automobiles, a newspaper reported on Sunday, September 24th, Strikers paraded all night through mill towns and villages, singing hymns of joy and celebrating the news that tomorrow the whistles will blow again. But when the mills reopened, many refused to rehire strikers, and others took back only UTW members who agreed to sign contracts which explicitly prohibited union membership. For years afterward, some have argued, the defeat hindered the growth of unions in the South. Eventually, official memory of the strike was all but lost to history. In the 1990s, however, a memorial was erected in Anhonia Path to honor the men killed in front of the Chicola plant. Another example of a major strike that occurred here in the Lowcountry took place at MUSC, back then known as the MCH, the Medical College Hospital, in which 400 black hospital workers, mostly women, led a strike in 1969 against the all-white administrations at two Charleston hospitals, 
Long-term factors that created the conditions for striking included white Charleston's racist attitudes towards communities of color, as well as their long-standing opposition to unions. Short-term factors included black nurses' aides being paid less than whites for the same work, being paid $1.30 an hour, 30 cents below the minimum wage, and the lack of respect shown by many white hospital workers to their black colleagues, often demonstrated by racist comments in their presence or directed at them. Other aspects of institutional racism at MCH included the lack of black students at the nursing school and the lack of black physicians on staff. A tipping point occurred in February 1967 when a white head nurse would not give five non-professional, quote-unquote, black workers the customary access to patients' charts. They refused to work and were fired the next day. Small groups of workers began meeting weekly at the local churches without publicity in fear of reprisals to discuss their concerns regarding institutional racism at MCH. They were joined by their counterparts at CCH, also known as the Charleston County Hospital, which no longer exists. And during these discussions, workers found that they faced the same struggle at both institutions. Faced with an overtly racist, corrupt administration, workers decided that they needed national union to represent them. Among the workers, veteran organizer Isaiah Bennett had contacts within local 1199 of the retail, wholesale, and department store workers, which had already organized hospital workers in New York City. Soon, local 1199B was chartered in Charleston, and Mary Moultrie was elected president. In February 1969, local 1199B officially requested formal recognition from MCH. On March 18th, MCH President William McCord met with Moultrie and a delegation of workers, but McCord brought an anti-union delegation with him, outnumbering Moultrie's group. Convinced negotiations in good faith were not possible, Moultrie and her colleagues walked out of the meeting. Other workers joined Moultrie's group and they briefly took over the president's office in protest. After the workers left the sit-in at the president's office and returned to their jobs, 12 of them were fired. That night, local 1199B voted to go on strike at MCH, demanding recognition of the union, a meaningful grievance procedure, a 30-cent increase in MCH's minimum hourly wage to the federal standard of $1.60, and the rehiring of the fired strikers. On March 20th, the strike began and picket lines formed at MCH, but this was quickly followed up by an injunction severely limiting the picketing. McCord stated that he would not, quote, turn a $25 million complex over to a bunch of people who don't even have a grammar school education, unquote. McCord and Governor Robert McNair declared that the state's right to work law precluded union recognition of MCH workers. On March 29th, their counterparts at CCH, Charleston County Hospital, also went on strike. As arrests for the violation of the anti-picketing injunction increased, Dr. Ralph David Abernathy, 
of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference arrived in Charleston on March 31st and spoke to 1,500 strikers and their supporters. SCLC, still recovering from the assassination of its first leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis a year earlier, saw the Charleston strike as a way to work with local 1199B in a, quote, union power, soul power, unquote, alliance. The presence of SCLC helped rally much of Charleston's black community in support of the strike. Well-known social justice leaders like Coretta Scott King also helped steer the movement, who led a march of 3,000 supporters in downtown Charleston's hospital district. Here is where we see yet again the capitalist predatory state responding the only way it knows how, with violence. On April 25th, Abernathy and 101 demonstrators were arrested and Governor McNair ordered 500 National Guardsmen with fixed bayonets to patrol city streets. This was followed by a curfew in Charleston from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. A state of emergency was declared in the city. Charleston had effectively become a police state as soldiers lurked on every street corner with automatic rifles ready to murder their fellow citizens at a moment's notice. On May 2nd, Abernathy was released from jail on bond, partly to defuse the situation. The strike went on for weeks, and it wasn't long before Charleston's economy started to feel the effects. Supporters honored SCLC's call for a boycott of city businesses. Tourism dropped sharply as word of the strike spread nationwide. The New York Times had already termed the strike the, quote, country's tensest civil rights struggle, unquote. Observers estimated that the strike ultimately cost Charleston more than $15 million in lost revenue. Economic pressures intensified political pressure to settle the strike. On May 11th, Mother's Day, a rally was held where more than 5,000 attendees gathered. The speaker lineup included Abernathy, Moultrie, Walter Ruther of the United Auto Workers, and five congressmen who denounced the harsh response and lack of progress from white state officials in strike negotiations. And on June 2nd, the curfew ended. But Abernathy's second arrest on June 20th led to the outcry amongst the black community in Charleston, and the curfew was reinstated. Meanwhile, negotiations between striking hospital workers and MCH Vice President William Huff led to an agreement. The 12 fired workers would be rehired, pay would be raised to the federal level, and a formal grievance procedure and a credit union would be established. But no union recognition or official collective bargaining would be permitted. The workers accepted the compromise. MCH strikers claimed victory, and CCH workers soon settled their strike on similar terms. The strike's results were significant at the time. Female workers at MCH and CCH believe that their actions led to a new relationship of mutual respect and dignity on, jo on the job and to improved race relations in the community. A year after the strike, Charleston elected its first black state legislator since Reconstruction, as well as several black city council members. Unfortunately, some of the results of the strike were not as positive. 
as local 1199B in Charleston folded after a year. Reports of employee exploitation and racial discrimination continued, and in 1996, the Department of Labor cited the Medical University of South Carolina for four violations of discrimination and 14 other related employment practices. When asked for comment, Mary Moultrie lamented that, quote, a lot of things change, and then you see them gradually regressing, unquote. Today, on Ashley Avenue in downtown Charleston, a historical marker stands in the hospital district as a reminder of the 5,000 people who marched on the city in protest on Mother's Day, 1969. 50 years later, community leaders gathered to march on the anniversary of the strike, along with a few of the original strikers and their families, including Louise Brown and Vera Small Singleton. Charleston DSA also participated in the march. Local activist and mayoral candidate Thomas Dixon was among the speakers at the march. Dixon remarked that progress had been made since the strike and gave the MUSC Board of Trustees credit for issuing a formal apology in 2015 for the conditions that led to the strike, but also noted that many more battles lay ahead. And that brings us to the present. Currently, the landscape here in South Carolina is ripe for unionizing opportunities. The food and beverage and hospitality and tourism industries drive a tremendous amount of economic activity here in the Lowcountry, especially on the Charleston Peninsula. Workers in these industries have the power to grind the city to a screeching halt if desired. Here's a snapshot of how critical food and beverage, hospitality, and tourism dollars are to the economy of this area. One, almost seven million visitors came to the greater Charleston area in 2017. That's a 26% increase from 2016. Two, the economic impact in 2017 was $7.37 billion, a $3.15 billion increase over 2016. Three, total labor earnings due to tourism equated to $2.7 billion in 2017. And let's put things in additional context. A single large-scale food and beverage event, the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, reported an economic impact of $18.6 million over the course of five days in their 2019 annual festival. And that's up from $15.3 million in 2018. However, much work needs to be done to plant the seeds of labor rights among a group of workers that have been underpaid and overworked for decades. A culture of mutual aid must be built from the ground up. Physical and financial resources must be put into the hands of these workers so that they might be able to withstand the hardships that, far too often, come from unionizing. And what of the teachers of South Carolina? Here at Charleston DSA, we're excited to see the first signs of a groundswell amongst public school employees that has been felt not only here in the Carolinas, but all across the country. We must do everything we can to build on this momentum. Efforts must be made to bring those on the front line to the front of the discussion as well. We must work to ensure that public school teachers and staff feel the community stands behind them as we battle a state that would rather turn the entire public school system over to private control. Currently, an education reform bill titled H3759 
the South Carolina Career Opportunity and Access for All Act has just made its way through the state house with a series of unfunded state mandates. If local districts don't comply with those mandates, their schools can be closed, turned over to charter school operations, privatized, or taken over by the state itself. Are the wheels of privatization turning again? Or will South Carolina start funding public schools like it's supposed to? That remains to be seen. Regardless, Charleston DSA will stay on top of this issue, so stay tuned. And with that, thanks again for joining us today here on Renegade Paradise. Remember, if you like what you heard today, we've got more episodes coming, and they'll be available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. We will also be launching a YouTube channel in the near future, so whether you already have a steady stream of leftist content in your subscription tab, or just stumble onto us between adorable cat videos, we're here for you. We want to be a part of the conversation with you. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm CJ Bones. Y'all be good. <laughs>